I think it's caused by panic and aggressive treatment. One important treatment I didn't mention uh, was providing oxygen to people with pneumonia. First of all, there's always people with pneumonia and other respiratory conditions, and most of them are old, and many of them have other pre-existing conditions. They have heart disease, they have liver problems, they got kidney problems, you name it. Um, so the, the aggressive treatment involved three things. First of all, intubating patients as opposed to providing a face mask with oxygen. Intubation can cause a lot of problems and it can actually cause more harm than good. There's a, an illness called uh, ventilation uh, valley, ventilation-associated lung injury. So if you're not very, very careful with intubation, you cause more harm than good. Uh, plus, you're dealing with generally old and frail patients. Then they used high-dose corticosteroids. And then they used the antiviral drug ribavirin. So afterwards, uh, the high-dose corticosteroids was associated with a um, permanent neurological injury and uh, a lot of what they call osteonecrosis, which is basically rotting of your bones, which led to a large number of joint replacements, hip replacements, things like that. Um, ritonavar was associated with, I think, something like 75% of people that took ritonavar um, had liver problems. Uh, it causes hemolytic anemia, which is basically your blood, blood breaks down. Um, and uh, it had, was associated with a higher death rate, you know, where there were people taking it and not taking it. So all of these things caused at least some of, of the, the damage. And right. it could just be that when, you know, a, a hospital gets in a patient who is like SARS or the new coronavirus, they immediately think, oh, this, per this person is in grave danger. So we got to, we, we cannot start by, you know, do they need a little oxygen? Uh, do they need some antibiotics, right? We, we got to go full bore and throw everything we got at them. Right. Th this person's going to die if like, we don't do something right now. Yes, and and so you know the, the everybody doing this is is very um, is very sincere. Uh, there there was one paper I didn't I didn't mention the evidence on intubation, but I think in Hong Kong there was like one hospital that did not start by intubating patients. The other thirteen hospitals did, and it it had something like a quarter the death rate. And yet when they looked at the patients coming into this one hospital, they were actually in worse shape to start with. So there was clear evidence that this rush to intubate was a, was a problem. And I just read a report from England that 75% of COVID patients are being intubated within 24 hours of, of um, arrival at the hospital. So wow. they're, they're doing the same thing. You're listening to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. Visit our website for free resources to aid you in your pursuit of self-liberation. Old Vanu publications, podcasts, guest articles, and much more. Go to vanupodcast.com. And now, your hosts, Shane and Jason. All right, and welcome to the Vanu Podcast, the podcast making you invulnerable to the coercion of the state and the servile society. I'm your host, Shane. Uh, so yeah, back today with another live stream. Uh, as always, please make, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe, uh, as well as leave any questions or uh, comments in chat. 
Uh, and uh, also feel free to super chat if you'd like or uh, donate Bitcoin or fiat uh, using the information in the description below. Uh, certainly appreciate it, but totally not necessary. So today I welcome back uh, David, or I, I, I welcome back, I, I welcome David Crow to the <laughs> podcast. Uh, David is the host of the Infectious Myth podcast, uh, a telecommunications consultant, environmentalist, writer, and critic of science and medicine. Uh, he is the author of a paper and a book we discussed on our last stream. Uh, and he's currently writing a book, uh, sharing the same uh, same name as his show, uh, wherein he discusses the overwhelming scientific evidence that's, uh, that the SARS, mad cow, um, HIV, AIDS, and uh, other diseases are environmental in nature, not infectious, as is commonly believed uh, today. Uh, so we'll get into some virology. We'll talk about some historical events, um, like I said, like the uh, SARS outbreak. Uh, we'll get his take on the current pandemic and uh, whatever else we get to today. So uh, without further ado, David, welcome to the Avani Podcast, sir. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing really well, and thanks so much uh, for having me. This is such an important subject right now, and, and people need to think, and they need to go back to basics, and they need to not just accept what they're being told. Right, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, right there with you. There are a lot of uh, really important ramifications, um, a, a lot of uh, really potential, you know, ramifications uh, very very serious to uh, to personal liberty and especially in terms of you know the uh, um, the surveillance state um, so um, again I'm uh, certainly uh, happy you're here with us um, to, uh, to to chat um, so I guess uh, why don't you start by uh, providing a brief introduction uh, um, who are you and uh, what do you do well you you read a little bit in the in the bio but I've um, been studying viruses uh, for a long time I, I, I graduated in biology uh, with a bachelor's degree and um, uh, a, a thesis in a biological numerical uh, concept that was published in a in a peer-reviewed journal, which is unusual for a bachelor's degree thesis. And I I was you know kind of oriented towards doing a PhD in biology, but I really loved computer programming. So after a while, I bailed and became a computer programmer, and then. Um, involved in the telecommunications industry in in technical aspects. Um, but I never lost my love and concern for science, and especially the mysteries of science, the things that we think are true but actually aren't or can't be proven true, um, the things that seem black and white that aren't. Those are the things that I, I found really interesting. So when I heard, accidentally, because my son was two, and he wouldn't go to sleep, so I'm walking around the living room. I listened to this very intellectual radio program at like 10 o'clock at night, and, mm -hmm. and they're talking about HIV not causing AIDS. So I was fascinated, and I wrote. This was pre-internet, so I, I wrote for the transcript, and it had some references, and I started reading some books and some papers, and um, I, I've built up a, a database of over 10,000 uh, articles and papers and things now, but that was kind of the start of this journey of looking at, first I looked at HIV and AIDS and, uh, you know, realized that there was something really wrong with this theory. And then people kept coming to me and they said, well, you know, what about polio? And I said, it's ridiculous. Everybody knows polio is an infectious <laughs> disease. But then I looked at the data and it's not so obvious. And then West Nile virus came along and I thought, okay, well, Nobody's really looked at that for a long time because it's not considered, wasn't considered really a big deal. And so I looked at that and this, this, this quality of the science uh, that's claimed to have detected the virus was so shoddy. I mean, it, it made even HIV science look good. 
so as time went on, uh, you know, more and more things fell into place. I, I um, found the work of this organic beef farmer in England named Mark Purdy, uh, who had fought the British state to prevent his cows from being treated with an organophosphate pesticide named Fosmet. After the Fosmet pesticide started to be applied to cows in England, the mm. mad cow epidemic broke out. And his theory was, mm. it's the pesticide dummy. You're pouring it onto the spines of the cows, and it's a nerve poison. Wow. So, like, one after another, uh, I, I started to realize there is a serious uh, alternative theory to all of these infectious disease theories. So, in, in 2003, I was, I was kind of prepared for SARS, and I did a lot of work on it. And it was, it was kind of part of this book project. But I kind of put it aside because I was so busy with other parts of life. When coronavirus came up, I like dragged my SARS chapter out of storage. I edited the heck out of it. And the more I learned about the new coronavirus, the more I realized it was a total repeat of SARS. But this time, the whole world had fallen for the story, not just a couple of countries. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think with SARS... America was saved by the Gulf War, 2003, the Iraq War, not the Gulf War. Because in March 2003, SARS hit around the world, and America was so preoccupied. I think March 2003 is when Bush said, mission accomplished or something. So America was totally uh, enthralled by these nightly CNN pictures of bombings in Baghdad and stuff like that. There was no airtime in the media for this second story. But this time, there was really nothing like that. And uh, so it was able to get uh, a grip on the United States as well as so many other countries, but not poor countries. Like somehow they seem to be immune. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's that's certainly uh, certainly an interesting, uh, I guess, an interesting start. And um <clears throat> Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely some interesting work. And uh, I've read, uh, made sure to read uh, your paper, and then I read the chapter, uh, the the SARS chapter from your book. And um, like, I, I'll be honest, uh, this was a, a new field for me. I mean, for for the past seven or eight months, I'd been kind of uh, um, obsessed with uh, um, with uh, I guess uh, biology and uh, biochemistry. So I've been just you know consuming as much as I can on that. And when that when the coronavirus thing came up, um, I guess red flags just started going off. And I was like, I need to, like, I, I don't know who to trust in this situation. So I need to, I needed to learn as much as I can about this myself. Um, so very new to the subject here. And I'm going to assume that mm-hmm. a lot of my listeners are too. So I guess if, if we could start with, uh, you know, kind of a broad introductory question here. Um, could you tell us a bit about, uh, I guess, the history of the, the, I guess, the field of virology? Uh, you know, what is a, a virus and, and maybe an overview of uh, the mainstream view? Well, I, th- I think virology actually goes back into prehistory. This um, belief that there is an invisible substance that can cause illness is deeply embedded in our civilization. One of the things I, I did when I was uh, learning Italian a few years ago is I discovered that there was a, a report written in 1648 about the 1630 epidemic in Milan, which is really ironic because Milan is now at the center of another epidemic. Right. And the, I looked at the report and said, everybody agrees that this is an infectious epidemic. So I said, I'm going to read the report and see if there's any evidence in this report that it's infectious. And of course, like you might find from a document from 1648, 
that there was no evidence and there was there were lots of references to how the saints saved this village from you know explaining why there were no cases in this village because they prayed harder than this village there was actually an experiment where they they took this invisible substance and how they got it i don't know and how it was that they could play with this invisible substance and nobody who was who was doing this experiment got sick they put it on bread and they fed it to chickens and then they cut open the chickens half an hour later and they were all black inside. So like if you want to believe that experiment actually happened, you're welcome to. But I, I think that goes under, you know, historical fairy tales. But what I noticed was that it, it was even at that day, the idea that uh, there were invisible infectious agents was accepted by everybody. There were different theories about where it came from, who was responsible, things like that. But there was no questioning that it was an invisible infectious agent. But until the 1930s, virologists had no capacity to see viruses. They, in fact, referred to them as filterable viruses. Because what they would do is they would, for example, take a mouse brain and they would grind it up. And then they'd put it through a really, really fine filter, so fine that no bacteria could go through it. And they take this liquid, which was a mixture of like cellular debris and all kinds of other things, and then maybe they'd inject it into the brain of another mouse. And if they could cause disease, they'd say, well, we can't see what's in here because it's too small. A light microscope cannot see something as small as viruses are supposed to be. Hmm. But we know there, there's a, we know there's an infectious agent in it because when we inject it into the brain of another mouse, it got sick. Now, I think now we know more about the immune system. We could think of other possible reasons why injecting foreign, um, you know, uh, cellular materials could cause illness. So then in the 1930s, it was now, they had electron microscopes, now it's possible to see viruses, except they couldn't. Hmm. Uh, there was a famous uh, virologist named Thomas Rivers, who in 1936 uh, stated, it is obvious that Koch's postulates, and I'll explain that in a second, have not been satisfied for viral diseases. So his solution was not to reconsider his field of virology. Of course not. He's a virologist. Why would he do that? But his solution was to try to change Koch's postulates. But Koch's postulates are simple logic. They basically derive from the fact that if a pathogen, like a, well, I'll use the word virus, but you could apply this to bacteria, prions, or anything. So if a virus causes disease, it must exist. Now, that seems, that seems like pretty <laughs> obvious. And I think we could all agree that that's true, that you need to have the virus exist. So if it right. exists, you should be able to see it. And the only way to know what you're looking at is to purify it. And so really, the first step of Koch's postulates is you must purify the, the virus. That's only step number one. The second is that with the pure virus, you can expose an animal to it and cause a similar disease as you're seeing in the people or animals you believe came down with this disease. And the, the reason for using pure virus to expose an animal is because if you're taking um, you know, ground up cells and then filtering them, there's a lot more in there than virus. In fact, you don't even know there's virus in there at all. So you may be causing illness, but it might not be caused by a virus. Mm -hmm. So you have to purify the virus. And that has become a big challenge for virology. But in the new world of genetics and DNA and RNA, virologists have decided 
if we can find the, you know what we call a full genome for a virus using molecular techni techniques we don't need to purify the problem is in this case it's an rna virus the the problem is that every cell of your body has rna in it um you inside your cells, you have these little things called mitochondria, which are fascinating little creatures. They're like bacteria that live inside every cell of your body, and they have their own DNA and also their own RNA. If you have bacteria or fungi in your body or parasites, they have their own RNA. So RNA is found throughout your body. And unlike DNA, RNA is more of a what, what I, it's more of a consumable. So the DNA in your nucleus, stays the same throughout your life. It's kind of immutable. There, there mm. may be some changes, but, you know, basically it's immutable. But RNA is produced from the nuclear DNA in order to create proteins, and there's messenger RNA. And all of this RNA is created, and then it's sort of dissolved back again so it can be reused because the, the, the beads of the RNA chain are, you know, uh, precious. So, so they can get reused. And, and it's thought that RNA, um, you know, is used as a messenger throughout the body. And sometimes these messages are wrapped in proteins. You know, they're called exosomes or uh, microvesicles or ectosomes. They have fancy names for them. But they look identical to viruses. And they move around the body. And if you're diseased, the body may produce more of them because the body is, you know, the lungs are saying to some other part of the body, you know, you need to produce something that we need in order to conquer this infection. Right. Like, like maybe the lungs are the immune system. So just because you see particles that look like viruses and just because you have RNA does not prove that you have an exogenous virus. And by exogenous, I mean it comes from outside, it infects you, it replicates and it causes disease. So they skipped by a really important step of proving that the virus existed, uh, which is why today I, I said only public health officials could lose a war against an imaginary enemy. I mean, <laughs> sometimes the military has to create enemies, right? Like you, right. you might go around the countryside and you might kill a few peasants and put a gun in their hands and say you've been killing, um, you know, rebels. That happens. But at least you know, somebody knows that it's a fake. <laughs> With this, the people doing this, they truly believe that they have a, a real virus, but nobody questioned, is the, is the first science that we got on this solid enough to go forwards with the destruction of the world's economy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to, I guess I want to reiterate and just kind of clarify this point, just make sure that the listeners, I guess the listeners and also that I understand this. Um, so RNA is found in, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's in, it's in everything in your body. Um, you know, RNA makes up every, every everything mm -hmm. in your body. So if you, if you if you have an immune response to a virus, um, then, I mean, there's going to be, yeah, like you said, there's going to be an, an increased, you know, probably an increased number of RNA because there's going to be an increased, uh, um, I don't know, maybe increased um, LDL particles or, or whatever, whatever immune system function it is. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people who know a lot more about this, but the basic fact is that um, RNA is produced in, and recycled and produced again, and it's not always the same. So the fact that you, like if you find a particular DNA sequence in a human being, it either came from the person or it came from some 
parasite, virus, bacteria, or whatever. But if you find RNA today and not tomorrow, well, that might be because your body was producing it yesterday, but tomorrow it doesn't need it anymore, so mm. it doesn't produce it. Right. Okay. Okay. Very good. And um, I guess I um, and I'm sure the listeners want to get get on to uh, you know SARS and uh, and uh, you know the, the the new coronavirus. But um, in transition to our discussion on that, I want to give you an opportunity because um, I've listened to a couple of a couple other podcasts that you've done, and uh, you you've, you've uh, expressed the importance of this. I want to make sure to give you give you an opportunity to talk about it. Um, but the polymerase chain reaction test used because that's what uh, is used to do this uh, this, um, this this test. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, you know what this test is, uh, where it came from, uh, the accuracy, uh, any. Yes. So um, the polymerase chain reaction was invented by Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in 1993 for chemistry for inventing a DNA manufacturing technique. So the concept is pretty simple, and this is is highly simplified. I mean, it's got a lot of complicated details, but the high-level concept is is pretty simple, that you you basically put a molecule of of, uh, DNA in your machine in the morning and on every cycle of the polymerase chain reaction you end up with double the amount of material and uh, since two to the power of 30 is a billion that means after 30 cycles you have a billion identical dna molecules so let's say that you were trying to produce insulin to put into bacteria to you know to produce genetically modified insulin i mean this is a dream come true so this is truly a revolutionary step in the biotech industry. But it was a manufacturing technique, not a test. Mm. And one of the interesting anecdotes about Kerry Mullis is that when Peter Duesberg, a a molecular biologist from UC Berkeley, wrote a book in 1996, like one of the top molecular biologists in America, wrote a book saying HIV does not cause AIDS. It was Kerry Mullis who wrote the foreword. So Kerry Mullis was a brilliant scientist, but he was not uh, you know, an establishment scientist. He didn't say what was, you know, what was he supposed to say. He had a habit of not saying what he was supposed to say. Um, and that won him some enemies. And unfortunately, he died last year because we really could use his uh, input here. So now we want to have a test. So the use of the PCR for a test is not the intended use of, of PCR, but basically what you do is you, you say, okay, this RNA is, um, is from the virus. So first step is you have to convert it to DNA uh, using a special enzyme called reverse transcriptase. That's kind of more of a mechanical step. And it, now you run the polymerase chain reaction. And this will manufacture the, the same DNA that you started with many times over. Um, it's, it's set up so that it's preferentially uh, reproduces the DNA that you want that matches the RNA in the supposed virus. And then after somewhere between 20 and 40 cycles, um, the the, uh, DNA has been bound to a fluorescent molecule, so it glows. And so you measure the amount of glow. And if the glow reaches a particular level by a particular number of cycles, you declare it's positive. So often 36 or 37 are used as the limit. This is a completely arbitrary number. You could run the PCR for 100 cycles, and presumably you'd get a whole bunch more people who are positive with tiny amounts of RNA in their bodies. Um, but once you've, you've uh, so you've run it, say, say you run it 
20 times and you can measure the fluorescence, then you say, okay, this guy's um, infected and he has a lot of, of um, virus. If you run it for 37 and don't get anything, you say, okay, this guy's negative. But we have proof that this doesn't work. There was a very interesting paper published, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet from some Singapore doctors, and they gave daily tests to 18 people over about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And the majority of those people went from positive to negative and back to positive again within a couple of days. So if positive means you're infected and negative means you're not infected, then this is impossible. Uh, because once you're infected and you clear the infection, you're supposed to be immune. If it's so easy to get reinfected, you're in a hospital where everything is sanitary, everything's sterilized, then it's absolutely hopeless to fight the virus. So no matter what you look... Yeah, and now, that, would, that would make this, vaccines superfluous, right? If, uh, if you can get reinfected again? Yeah, like it, 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 like it, somehow it destroys the whole theory, but it's like... I'm not sure how it destroys the theory because we, we don't really know all the details. But you cannot, if the viral model is correct, you cannot go from positive, from infected to uninfected to infected again. Maybe you just need to run the test for more cycles, but there's no proof if you did run it for more cycles, you, you wouldn't get this transition occurring instead of at 37 at 47, right? Like they, they can't really get themselves out of this. At the very least, it says... We have not properly validated this this test, and and if we don't know if the test is is producing, is saying infected and uninfected when you actually are, then the test is pretty useless and it's pretty dangerous, because presumably if it can have false positives, it can have false negatives, and that would mean that somebody has no symptoms, like many people who are infected. You run a test and say they're negative, and you let them out into the community, and then they walk around for two weeks, and then they get sick. And then you do another test and they're positive, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it, um, it, it, both cases are uh, a problem. And actually the false positives are a much bigger problem than people think. People think, okay, you put a guy in quarantine for 40, 14 days. It's a, it's a personal inconvenience for this guy, but nothing else bad uh, will happen. But that, that's not true. Right? I can detail some of the bad things that will happen. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So, um, I guess um, uh, let's, let's get a little a little bit into uh, into the, the the SARS outbreak here. And I guess um, if you could just, uh, I guess maybe give us a little overview, of maybe the the, the origins of it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the outbreak, and and then also, uh, I guess um, some of the uh, um, some of the things that you discuss uh, in that chapter. Yeah. Well. Um Social media wasn't really in existence back in 2003, but they did have emails. So the Chinese didn't really take this too seriously. I mean, China's got some pretty heavily polluted places. Maybe it was, I think it was probably a lot worse in 2003. Um, so respiratory disease is, and a high rate of smoking. So respiratory disease is not exactly a stranger to China. So if you get a little cluster of a few cases of pneumonia that don't seem to respond to treatment, that's probably not a big deal in a country of over a billion people. But there was this email that went around kind of a chat list of epidemiologists, and they took it pretty seriously. Uh, so when somebody showed up in Hong Kong, who, who then got really sick from pneumonia, uh, like the full bore panic uh, 
came out. And of course, they blamed the Chinese. In this case, it was the city of Guangzhou uh, near Hong Kong and not uh, Wuhan. Uh, and it spread to um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, Canada. Really nowhere else. There were like one or two cases around the rest of the world. It was seen as incredibly infectious. Like, for example, there was a guy in an elevator and he touched, you know, the button to get down to the lobby. Mm -hmm. And then some hours later, somebody else got into the elevator and got infected. Well, that's pretty infectious. But there was an amazing accidental experiment that was done in China in a hospital in Guangzhou. The AIDS ward had some empty space. Oh, this, this, is, so cra this is crazy. They put the SARS. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the wow. funniest thing ever. Uh, so, Go ahead, sorry. so the AIDS ward um, uh, had some empty space. So, of course, they put the SARS patients on the AIDS ward. Now, think about this. The AIDS patients who had, they were seriously ill AIDS patients, like they had opportunistic infections, they were clearly immune suppressed, are put onto a ward with the most in infectious disease at that time known to man before this new coronavirus came along. Uh, this, this paper is very thorough, and it noted that they, they kept the SARS and the AIDS patients on separate sides of the floor, but in between the two sides, there was a corridor used by the staff, which had open windows on both sides. So there was free airflow through the entire floor. Plus, there was like a little uh, waiting room that, that the patients could mingle in. And in one case, an AIDS patient was accidentally put into a room with SARS patients. So they did everything possible to infect the AIDS patients. And anybody can guess that in the end, there were zero cases of SARS in the AIDS patients. So how can this incredibly infectious virus not infect immune-suppressed people? That, that makes no sense at all. Right. Um, it, SARS hit Canada harder than any other country. The death rate in Canada was the highest, and the death rate in China was the lowest. And uh, so I have a graph in my book where I, I graph the GDP versus the death rate, and there's a pretty strong correlation between GDP and death rate, and I think there's a reason for that. In Canada, they used an antiviral drug um, called Ritonavar, and they used about double the dose of China, and it was injected, whereas in China it was oral. And, you know, an oral pill, you'd be lucky to get 50% absorbed. So probably the Canadians had four times the dose. After SARS, you know, the review of the evidence on um, the use of ritonavir and also high-dose corticosteroids was it didn't help. It, it harmed people. It probably killed people. And because... Canada had the richest healthcare system, and, and you know there weren't that many patients. They could afford to give expensive drugs to everybody. Uh, they ended up with the highest death rate, and, and it was almost like a, a rerun, a pre-run of this epidemic because Toronto was pretty much shut down, restaurants closed, theaters closed, airport pretty much shut down, all conferences canceled. Like the economy of Toronto was was basically put on life support for uh, a couple of months. But it was just Toronto. So, of course, even Canada can recover from that pretty quickly. Now we're, we're dealing with the same thing in, in multiple countries around the world. And it's going to be much harder to uh, recover from. Right. 
Yeah, that's um, that's uh, it's no joke. Um, that is no joke. It's it's going to be interesting to see how the the next uh, the next few years play out. But um, yeah, it'll uh, it'll certainly be interesting. So so I guess uh, that the listeners are probably uh, probably wondering wondering then. Um, so if uh, if SARS wasn't isn't this infectious disease, then 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 how how you know like then how is it caused? You know how is this uh, how is this illness caused? Well, I think it's caused by panic and aggressive treatment. One important treatment I didn't mention uh, was providing oxygen to people with pneumonia. First of all, there's always people with pneumonia and other respiratory conditions, and most of them are old, and many of them have other pre-existing conditions. They have heart disease, they have liver problems, they got kidney problems, you name it. Um, so, the, the aggressive treatment involved three things. First of all, intubating patients as opposed to providing a face mask with oxygen. Intubation can cause a lot of problems and it can actually cause more harm than good. There's a, an illness called uh, ventilation uh, valley, ventilation-associated lung injury. So if you're not very, very careful with intubation, you cause more harm than good. Uh, plus you're dealing with generally old and frail patients. Then they used high-dose corticosteroids, and then they used the antiviral drug ribavirin. So afterwards, uh, the high-dose corticosteroids was associated with a um, permanent neurological injury and uh, a lot of what they call osteonecrosis, which is basically rotting of your bones, which led to a large number of joint replacements, hip replacements, things like that. Um, ritonavar was associated with, I think, something like 75% of people that took ritonavar um, had liver problems. Uh, it causes hemolytic anemia, which is basically your blood, blood breaks down. Um, and uh, it, it had was associated with a higher death rate, you know, where there were people taking it and not taking it. So all of these things caused at least some of, of the, the damage. And it right. could just be that when, you know, a, a hospital gets in a patient who is like SARS or the new coronavirus, they immediately think, oh, this, per this person is in grave danger. So we got to, we, we cannot start by, you know, do they need a little oxygen? Uh, do they need some antibiotics, right? We, we got to go full bore and throw everything we got at them. Right. Th this person's going to die if like, we don't do something right now. Yes, and and so you know the, the everybody doing this is is very um, is very sincere. Uh, there there was one paper I didn't I didn't mention the evidence on intubation, but I think in Hong Kong there was like one hospital that did not start by intubating patients. The other thirteen hospitals did, and it it had something like a quarter of the death rate. And yet when they looked at the patients coming into this one hospital, they were actually in worse shape to start with. So there was clear evidence that this rush to intubate was a, was a problem. And I just read a report from England that 75% of COVID patients are being intubated within 24 hours of, of um, arrival at the hospital. So wow. they're, they're doing the same thing. When it comes to um, drugs, they're using just about every antiviral drug except ritonavar. I guess they learned that lesson. There's also talk of chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, uh, some rheumatoid arthritis drugs, um, you know, which probably have some really good success in the test tube. But, you know, we know nothing about their safety and effectiveness right. in people. 
And and another point that, I, that is really important is they're doing things that are called clinical trials at this time. It is impossible to do a clinical trial during a time of panic because a proper clinical trial should be placebo-controlled, randomized, double-blind, etc. There's going to be no placebo in, in these cases. Uh, there's, it's probably not going to be blinded. The doctors really want these drugs to succeed. So there's a huge amount of bias that goes into it. Um, so the information that's gathered from these trials is going to be close to useless. And is it worth risking the life of some frail old person because you want to find out if this um, rheumatoid arthritis drug is going to be a miracle cure. Like, who would have thought that you could mm-hmm. randomly take a drug off a shelf, throw, show that it does something in a test tube, and then actually cause improvements? I think the chances are it will harm these, these people, you know? Yeah. And, and it, it's not that these people are going to live much longer. I mean, if you're 80, and you, like in, in Italy, they found that close to 50% of the first 2,000 deaths were in in people of an average age of 80 with three or more pre-existing health conditions. So somebody like that doesn't have a lot of years in front of them, right? Maybe they got one or two. But the question is, do you want to die? If it wasn't a respiratory illness, it would would have been something else. Yeah, if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. Yeah. But what would you choose? You want to die in a hospital ward with everybody dressed up like you're, you're... something horribly infectious with no relatives around you or die at home or at least in a hospital ward with, you know, your children and grandchildren, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah, pretty, pretty easy decision. Pretty easy decision. Um, so yeah, um, for, uh, for those uh, new to the stream, I'm here with, uh, I'm talking with uh, David Crow. Um, his website is uh, theinfectiousmyth.com and, he also, and you also have a davidcrow.ca, um, correct? And it's Crow with an E? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's that's less important Very for, good. for this topic. <laughs> Very good. All right. Um, so uh, um, yeah, let's uh, uh, go ahead and uh, um, and get back to it though. So um, I guess uh, with this uh, with this newest coronavirus. Um, so you said you kind of dug out your stuff on SARS. Um, so this is uh, kind of a, a repeat and, and uh, kind of just uh, um, uh, um, an even bigger blowing up of, of, of SARS. So I guess um, we've talked a little bit about. Um, the uh, um, some of the the treatment that's uh, that that's ongoing. Um, could you um, let me see here? Um, what have you uncovered about? Uh, I guess maybe the transmission rate. You talk a little bit uh, in your paper about um, you know the the original Chinese uh, couple um, and uh, and uh, the testing that went along with that. It, it, yeah, I, I mean, I made a comment that when I read these medical papers, I want to be very careful that it might be in the New England Journal of Medicine is not a scientific paper. So they have this family cluster, you know, uh, seven or eight people, and um, they believed that the it, it was like three generations. So two grandparents, uh, two parents, two grandchildren. And uh, the, the mother and the grandmother went to visit a sick relative in Wuhan, uh, a baby boy who had pneumonia, and they believed they came back with uh, the virus. Uh, everybody got sick with similar sort of respiratory illnesses, although the family seemed to have a history of sickness. Um, the the woman was kind of critical to the whole family cluster, and, and she had the same symptoms. So, you know, really, it, you know, you'd think she had the same illness as everybody else. 
but they tested her 18 times. They took uh, throat samples and nose samples, and they used different PCR machines, and they did everything they could, and they tested her 18 times, and she was negative on every test. And so they wrote that because of her connection with the other patients, we believe she was infected. So what that means was if the PCR test was false negative 18 times on her. <laughs> so however you want to slice it, this is not a good test. So, so that was one thing, um, you know, like was she really infected? And, and if she wasn't infected with the virus and she had the same symptoms as her, as her husband and her, her parents and um, uh, the grandchildren never got sick, um, if, if she had the same symptoms, maybe she, they all had a different virus or a different cause for their illness. Like maybe none of them had the coronavirus causing illness. And that is actually an important point. Just because you find a virus, if you assume that the test is finding a virus, that's not proof it's causing the illness. Mm -hmm. So we're assuming there's kind of a priority. Uh, you, you know, basically, if you do the coronavirus test now and it's positive, you don't have to look anywhere else. You don't have to look for influenza or, or you know, a hundred other respiratory viruses or potentially bacterial infections. If you get that positive coronavirus test, it is at the top of the hierarchy, and it can't. There can't be any other reason for that person being sick except for that. But what if you did a screen of like two hundred different tests, and five of them were positive, mm -hmm. and one of them was the coronavirus? Would that mean that everything was caused by the coronavirus? Like it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's biased because if you preferentially test for this one new virus, you're going to find cases. Right. And, and that's why I wrote at the beginning of my paper, it was like the first sentence I wrote. We do not have an epidemic of a virus. We have an epidemic of testing. And, and people say in America, we should be doing more testing. Why is Trump not doing more testing? He's lying about it. We're not doing enough testing. If you do more testing, then 1% to 5% of those test results are going to be positive. And the question is, how big of an epidemic do you want? Because, how, you know, you tell us how big you want it, and we can do the testing to get you there, if, if that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and and we talked about it, and this is the, the really critical part, I think. Um, obviously, there's the, the disease definition that you talked about, where it's just so broad that basically any any cold or flu-like symptoms, you, you kind of uh, um, you kind of fall into a potential um, potential you know um, suspected uh, a coronavirus patient. Um, there's there's that. Then there's uh, um, yeah, as we're, we're talking about here, the testing um, with uh, and, and there was that uh, I guess that paper that was released uh, 80, 80, 80 plus percent false positive um, on asymptomatic uh, on asymptomatic symptomatic people. So it just seems to me like this this is a really unreliable test. Yes. And, and actually, almost every biological test is highly unreliable on healthy people um, because you're looking for a disease that is, is not that common. And, and basically, with simple mathematics, you can show that a 99% accurate test can produce 99% false positives if you're looking for a, a rare disease. And I don't want to go through the math. It's not that complicated. And it, it's based on what they call positive predictive value. And if you look that up, you'll see it. And so if you're looking for, say, um, a, a disease that's found in one out of 10,000 people, and you have a 99% accurate test, you'll get about a 99% false positive rate, which is hard to believe, but you do the math and it's, it's obvious. Right. 
Yeah. And and that's that's what they were doing in, in China. I, I should finish up on transmission because there's a couple other cases that are even more illustrative. Sure. Uh, the Diamond Princess, you know, people were on the boat for a long time and they had something like a 16, 17% quote infection rate of which 50% had no symptoms. So, you know, they they say, you know, after a while they quarantined these these people to the cabins, but the staff had to deliver meals to the cabins. Um, and, and so how could it be that they had such a low rate of infection? Then there was another case. They, they said this was the first case of, of person-to-person transmission in the United States. So an elderly woman comes home from Wuhan to her husband, who's in Illinois, I believe. He probably didn't travel because he had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So he was probably too sick to go to Wuhan to visit um, relatives. So he ends up at emergency for some reason, and um, they find that both of them are positive. So they say, oh, she came back from China with the virus, and she infected her husband. So then they managed to find 300 and some, I think it was like 375 contacts, of which something like 325 they could actually get a hold of, mm-hmm. right? So they had 325 people who'd been in contact with this couple, and they investigated them all, and they found not a single other positive person. So just so, so, again, yeah, so to reiterate this for, for the listeners, um, there's all of these people that were in contact with her, and this is supposed to be a highly transmissible. It's supposed to be I don't know how 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 many times more more transmissible than the flu. Like, um, but that's a super low infection rate. <laughs> yes, and and another um, good illustration of um, propaganda was I don't know if you heard you know this is a while ago now. It's like a month ago, and it seems like prehistory. Uh, there was this woman in in South Korea who was called a super spreader because she infected 37 people. So I I looked at it. This it seemed really strange. So what they did is she was a member of this this uh, large church in uh, South Korea, and uh, apparently the congregation of her one church is 1,100 people. So they went to all 1,100 people and tested everybody, and they found 37 positive, and they blamed it all on this one woman. So I said, well, what's the percentage positive? (laughs) Well, 37 out of 1,100 and whatever turned out to be 3%. So then I went to the records of the Korean government, and they by then had done like 50,000 tests. And what percentage of them were positive? Well, about 4%. So basically, if you tested... Any population in Korea, you're probably going to get three or four percent positive. So this woman just happened to have a lot of contacts. Like most women in their 60s, uh, might have you know 20 contacts, right? Depending on how you you find them. But mm-hmm. because she went to a church with so many people, they said, oh, she has a huge number of contacts, and she's responsible for the transmission to everybody. But what if the test is lousy? And those people are testing positive for some reason other than having a, a virus. And it's just like a random crapshoot. If you test 100 people, you'll get 1% to 4% testing positive. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess um, are, there were even some cases that um, appeared outside of, uh, outside of Wuhan with, uh, or I guess outside of China, um, where there was no contact whatsoever with potential, with, with potential, uh, potential cases. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, the number 37 crops up again in the um, the first case in Italy uh, that was not from a traveler. I guess they had some travelers come in. They found 
37 cases within 24 hours. I'm not sure how they did this, but they 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 found 37 positive cases within um, uh, 24 hours, and none of them had a connection to this original case. And then later, they found some 88-year-old guy in San Marino, and uh, which is a long way from Lombardy in northern Italy. And he'd never traveled or not any time recently. And he'd not been in touch with any previous patients, but he tested positive anyway. And I have a whole list of this in my article of, of the, what I call these magical transmission cases where there's no mm-hmm. apparent uh, connection. I just read data from Iceland, like a third of the cases have no known epidemiological connection. And, and people say, well, we'll find it. We'll find it. But I don't think they will, because I think the test doesn't mean you're infected. And if you think about it, let's say that the test was just like a, a random number generator that, you know, you roll the dice and, and there is like a five, one to five percent chance that, that it's going to you're, you're going to get heads. Right. Whatever. I don't know exactly what device you'd have to roll to get um, <laughs> to get this. But let's say it was just random. Then, you know, the results of what we're seeing are pretty much similar. And if you panic based on the random result and you intubate people and you give them drugs you wouldn't otherwise give and you you basically tell them by the way you're treating them that they've got a deadly infection, right? Like nobody actually looks at this person because they're all behind a masked suit. Everything is done with gloves on and everything is done with a suit on. This person gets the message, this 80-year-old person gets the message, you're dying, right? And and what does that do to some old person who's already struggling mm-hmm. with health problems? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's an important point to reemphasize as well as, um, you know, we, we, we talked about the Italy numbers. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, um, with with these very vulnerable uh, vulnerable individuals with uh, yeah with comorbidities, um, yeah, something small like that uh, it can it can knock them out. And as we we talked about the iatrogenic death, I could totally see you know a, a healthy um, you know a healthy individual you know maybe you know maybe in their early thirties or forties um, go in there with a positive test, maybe some mild symptoms of the cold. They got they were a little concerned, maybe a little worried, so they went in. Um, you know, doctors diagnosed them with uh, you know the coronavirus, um, and uh, you know they you know began. And, um, you know, maybe more stringent treatment than they should have. And then, you know, maybe it goes downhill and a perfectly healthy individual could end up dying from, um, you know, dying from treatment. Um, is it, you think, you think that's a plausible uh, scenario? Yes. Uh, there's, there's a really scary scenario that's happening in the UK. Um, uh, I was talking to a nurse there. Uh, I want to talk about unintended consequences. So, you know, one of them that's maybe a little bit humorous, depending on how you look at this, is that um, in Brazil, they said to the prisoners, okay, no no visits because of the coronavirus. There were riot, riots in several major prisons, and, and something like 300 prisoners broke out of the prison. So that's an unintended consequence of panicking over the virus. Because for a lot of these people in prisons, like your weekly visit from your family might be the only thing in your life that mm-hmm. is positive, Right. So it pushed them over the edge. So in England, uh, something that's that's more serious is that there's posters all over the place that say, if you are sick, go home and self-quarantine for 14 days. Do not come to the emergency room. Okay? So, you know, this, this young person gets, um, you know, bad cold, and they go home. 
and you know, most of the time after a couple of days, it resolves. But in some mm-hmm. cases, of course, it ends up with pneumonia, even in young people. So this person is not getting better, but they see these posters and websites and everything that say, do not come to emergency. And so they wait. But eventually it becomes obvious that they've got to go to emergency. So now this person who may be on day three had the starts of pneumonia, maybe on day six, seven, eight, nine, ten, has serious pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And they show up at the hospital, and now they need much more stringent uh, treatment. Uh, and they're the, a the young person. That, yeah. they're a young person with no pre-existing health conditions who has tried to do the right thing. You know, it's it, the these posters are very firm. They say, you must stay at home and self-isolate. You, you should not come to the emergency room. Mm. Like, that could be a, a huge iatrogenic problem. So instead of going to the emergency room at the beginning when you're really feeling crappy and, and this is not a normal cold and maybe getting antibiotics and going home and two days later you're better, now you have severe pneumonia, your lungs are half full of, of fluid and, you know, they now have to save your life. Right. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, um, and, and uh, I, I mentioned this in our in our, in our last stream, so listeners are aware of this. But um, yeah, I mean, I when I growing up uh, through childhood, I had a lot of respiratory illness, and um, yeah, I mean, I always I always went to the doctor early and, and, and caught it, you know, pneumonia, bronchitis, all sorts of stuff. Um, which is one which is one reason why this just seems really really crazy um, to lock down, you know, an entire world economy over um, a respiratory illness. Um, you know, maybe you know serious serious sure, but it just seems um, yeah, little little crazy to me um but um <clears throat> okay well i have i have an all-encompassing theory that i think explains the behavior of public health officials and that is that they have this fanatical belief that if you can take a new disease and you can encircle it and utterly destroy it then you can stop it from getting out they're they're taught this in school this is what you got to do uh, and that's why we're getting all of this self-isolation, things like that. We're going to get every last case and and uh, destroy it. And, and I think even if it was an infectious disease or, you know, if 100% of the tests were accurate and it was an infectious disease, I think it's way too late. If it's truly an infectious disease, they're, they're getting cases all over the place. So clearly it's escaped out of your little, your little fence, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can't make the fence big enough. But this is their fanatical belief. And they promised us, you know, the citizens, that we can do this. We know how to build this fence. We know how to go in there and we know how to destroy every last virus particle. And then when we destroy the last one, it's gone forever. It will never come back. And I, and I think this is madness. Um, I, I don't think it could work even if their viral theory was com- completely correct. But now they're in a position where they can't get out of their own rhetoric. Because if they say, okay, we failed, we didn't do it. A lot of people are going to be asking, you know, you were pretty confident that you could do this. Mm-hmm. You told us a month ago that this was no big deal. You got the best public health officials. You know how to do this. It's under control. Don't worry. This is not China. And you failed. So that's bad. I don't see a way out of this without uh, some people looking pretty bad and losing their jobs. And, of course, that's the last thing you want when you're earning a six-figure salary is to lose your nice cushy job that makes you feel really important. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh um yeah, that's uh definitely plausible. Definitely plausible. So, um I guess so we we're, we've got about uh, you know another 7 minutes here. So so to wrap up and uh I guess um 
before I get to these uh, other couple of questions, since this is, since this is a YouTube, and I'm, I'm sure um, yeah, I'm sure people are going to come across this video um, that might be uh, you know quest- questioning some other theories. I'd like to get your your quick t- quick takes on those. But um, in terms of uh, SARS, in terms of the coronavirus, um, I, I guess is there anything else critical to uh, to discuss here that you that you want to mention? Uh, I just like to say that this idea that there there are all these extra deaths um, that's BS. The number of deaths so far, like in a one week in Italy, in a bad flu season, um, you can have the same number of people dying in one week as have died, died supposedly from coronavirus in the entire period of the epidemic. So the, the numbers are just noise. Uh, every year, um, you know, tens of thousands of old people die. And many of respiratory illnesses is a sad fact of life. Uh, but that's that's reality. And there's no indication, like European um, mortality statistics do not see, do not show an upswing. They actually show that deaths are declining as they do every spring. Hmm. So that's one thing I want to get out. Okay, very interesting, very interesting. So I guess just something that something that uh, that I guess I've thought about that that just uh, just came to mind. Um, so I guess would would one possible way to to test maybe the difference between the years? Um, since uh, you know we um, you you've talked about the the broad disease disease definition. So obviously you know with uh, with de- with uh, death statistics as well as um, you know just just cases total cases. Um, if you've got uh, you know bacterial bacterial pneumonia you know factored in there. You know if you've got other other illnesses factored in there with, you know, the, the, the so-called coronavirus, you're going to have inflated numbers on that as well, correct? Uh, maybe from, from year to year, possibly? I'm not quite sure what you mean. Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's some pretty traumatic differences from year to year in what they call a bad flu season and a good flu season. So you, you could actually have, and there may be some additional deaths this year, but they're minor compared to what happens in a bad flu season. And in, in Europe, the last four years, Actually, the flu peak has been getting lower and, and lower, which is, is surely a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if there are some additional deaths in the grand scheme of things, they're not that significant. Now, okay, every death is, is significant to somebody. But the point is, do we shut down the world's economy because, because there's a, a bad flu season? Do right. we shut down the world's economy because 30,000 Americans get killed by cars every year? You know, like, why are we doing this for for what, in the grand scheme of things, is is possibly a slight shortening of the life of very elderly, mostly sick people? And and I'm not advocating that we, you know, eliminate old people. I, I think we should allow them to live out their life as, as much as we can. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, first of all, we don't really know this is going to work. And uh, And secondly, it's just like way over the top. Uh, for the size of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Um, so I, I guess, um, yeah, like I said, I, I just want to ask you, get your thoughts on this on this one thing. I think that the question uh, might be, I guess, uh, might answer itself, though. Um, so I, I guess... Um, what about um, obviously? There's a theory going around about uh, you know uh, there's a there's a bioweapons laboratory in, in, in Wuhan. Um, obviously, in order for there for there to be a bioweapon, there would have viruses would have to exist, right? And 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 uh, and I guess you and 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 you would you would uh, you would disagree with that. Um, so the bioweapons okay, thing wouldn't even I come think, into play. Yeah. I, well, I I think it's called a virology lab. You know, if they're doing bioweapons research, I I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm sure they don't call it a bioweapons lab. I think it's important because I think that the doctors in Wuhan who started this problem had access to virology 
you know, they could go to this lab and say, could you screen for a thousand different viruses? They had access to technology that probably if, if you were in another city in China, maybe not even Beijing and Shanghai, you would not have access to. So I think the, the closeness of the virology lab may have kicked this whole thing off accidentally mm. just because they were able to to go to them and say, you know, let's let's do some screening here and see if we got a new virus. And of course, everybody gets excited when there's a new virus. I mean, it's like it's like discovering a new species of panda bear or something, right? Like you, you get papers, you get excitement, all kinds of stuff. Right. Not as cute as a panda bear, but right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. That that uh, cer- certainly makes sense. So I guess uh, um, any uh, any other closing thoughts for the listeners that you uh, any closing thoughts you think are important to leave them with, um, and feel free to go ahead and, and, and plug your stuff as well. Uh, yeah, well, I hope everybody reads my report on the coronavirus. And if you really like that, then the SARS chapter, which is is a bit bigger, it was a lot bigger when I started, but now it's not that much bigger, is also important. And then I, I think, you know, think this through and what you do and understand the danger of asking for a test, the danger of going to the hospital in a time of utter panic. Uh, I, I think people really need to to think if you've if you've got a cough and a fever, you, you know it's it's a difficult situation. Like when do you go to emergency where you're going to be looked on as a potential coronavirus patient? You don't want to be like the people in England who are leaving it too late, right? So I guess stay healthy, and then you don't have to worry about what you should do when you've got a bad flu or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, illness and sickness is uh, you know not it's uh, never fun, never fun at all. And uh, unfortunately, with uh, with this uh, unfolding situation, um, you know there's a there's a lot more um, at play. But obviously, the the human life is is important too. Um, but yeah, there's uh, certainly certainly a lot at play. Well, David, thank you so much for for taking some time to chat today. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and I will uh, certainly put all the uh, links in the show notes. And uh, I do encourage uh, the listeners to go and check out. I've been uh, showing it on screen capture um, for uh, for the uh, viewers on YouTube. Uh, so I do uh, certainly encourage them to go check out um, the, uh, the paper uh, on, the cor- on the coronavirus as well as uh, the uh, chapter on SARS. Uh, great work, very fascinating stuff. Um, and uh, thanks again, David. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. Not a problem. Goodbye. All All right. And uh, that's all we have for you. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. I sure do hope you found uh, the discussion valuable uh, and insightful. And uh, like I said, please do go check out uh, his work. Um, It's a very, very, uh, you know, it's a very important subject. That's how we're talking about it again uh, here on the Vaughning Podcast. So uh, real quick, please consider checking out uh, the sponsor of this show, Liberty Intertype Publications. Uh, We are a liberty-focused publisher, publishing uh, great anarchist fiction, strategy guides, etc. And uh, we also help authors through every step of the publishing process. Uh, You can view our entire catalog at libertyinteractive.com. And uh, good news, actually, um, as of uh, just a moment, I guess, just uh, earlier today, uh, but the audiobook for Second Round Book on Strategy is now available uh, on Amazon um, and Audible. And uh, yeah, as a special as a special offer, you can snag a free copy, a free download of the audiobook uh, by visiting libertyunderattack.com forward slash SR audio. Again, libertyunderattack.com forward slash SR audio and uh, signing up, you know, by signing up for a, a free trial via Audible. Uh, it doesn't cost you a penny and it does help us out. Um, it does help us a lot. Uh, so thank you uh, so much in advance. Uh, other than that, uh, I plan on doing a stream with uh, Matthew Raymer, uh, my colleague from uh, the Philippines uh, and lead de- uh, lead developer of our now defunct uh, project, uh, Darklands. Hopefully, we'll get back into that at some point. Uh, hopefully, that project will uh, will come back to life because, uh, yeah, as uh, <laughs> you know, 
every day that goes by, you know, the, the, you know, building the Agora and building the second realm is that much more important. And, uh, you know, Darklands, I think, could be a very important tool uh, for that, um, you know, in the, in the very near future. So uh, I do hope that uh, that project uh, does, uh, you know, kick back off. Um, feel free, uh, if you're interested, you can find us on Discord. Just go to, just let me know. I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a link in the show notes if uh, you're interested in learning more. But uh, yeah, with Matthew, we'll uh, see how life is in the Philippines uh, with this uh, this uh, so-called silent enemy. Uh, we'll get update on contentsafe.co, uh, his, him and uh, Daryl Becker's uh, business, and uh, whatever else we get to. So uh, make sure to like, subscribe, and uh, hit that bell to be notified of, of uh, upcoming live streams. Um, yeah, doing them uh, more regularly now. So um, I think that's uh, all I've got. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, until next time, see you guys.